Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm your host, Zach. Now, normally we have a long paragraph here to introduce, or, or maybe even a set of paragraphs, to introduce the concept, but the concept for this episode is actually rather simple. Zach, actually, you were here last year for this exact episode. Do you want to introduce the concept briefly? <laughs> I usually do this, so... Would you like to do the honors this time? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I was uh, here last year, but uh, longtime listeners of the show will note that this is something that we've done for the past three years. Mm -hmm. It's the fourth year in a row of the tradition of hearing from people on the team what the coolest data science-related thing they learned about last year was. Yeah, uh, it's a good way to wrap up the year, get kind of a little check mark, little it's the holiday season, a nice little bow on top of it, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a good way to understand what what kind of advancements happened in the last year, be it cool things in AI, the hippest new programming language, some sweet video game related stuff, or, or whatever is intriguing members of the Clavio data science team. So, well, and I think it's important to highlight that because you hear this episode, like you hear the concept for the episode, you think, okay, everything's just going to be big new stories in AI or big news stories in machine learning from the last year. And it really, it isn't that. I think something that happens every single year is people will, you know, someone will have run across an old technique right. that they have used either for the first time or they've applied to a new area for the first time and they've learned something new and interesting about it. So, you know, it isn't going to blow your socks off with the novelty but it is going to potentially introduce you to a new idea that might be valuable for you in your life. And, you know, hopefully is also just interesting to hear about regardless. So we really do look for a mix of things. We're not just looking for headline stuff. We're not just looking for AI. We're not just looking for machine learning. We're, we're really trying to cast a pretty wide net in an episode like this. Yeah, you know, I like that it kind of gives some insight into the the breadth of problems that we're solving on the data science team, because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, as we kind of allude at sometimes on this show, it's, it's not always a one size fits all approach for data science. Sometimes you need to kind of dive into the research, find some specific technique. And sometimes that's some econometrics technique from, you know, the 60s, or mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's something that was used 20 years ago, or something that just was developed in the last year. So and frankly, that's kind of how the world of research and AI and ML works. Right. I mean, think of the explosion of deep learning. Yeah. Deep learning was, I mean, mathematically, it was something that was known decades and decades and decades right. ago. It was advancements in technology that actually made that available. And I think it's a good reminder that not every technique that is potentially extraordinarily powerful and useful is actually something that was invented in the year of our Lord 2023. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a while for ideas to kind of get their relevance. Sometimes it's, you know, technological limitations. And sometimes it's just kind of not having the right problem to solve for it yet. Like the first neural networks were not really better than just other techniques at the time because they hadn't really been applied to the right problems yet. And in addition to not having the computational power to really get them mm -hmm. there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So all that to say, you're going to hear a number of people answer the question, what was the most interesting data science thing that you learned in 2023? And we hope you enjoy their answers. Let's go ahead yeah. and jump into those conversations. Next up on the podcast, we are joined by Wayne. Wayne, welcome. 
Thank you. Could you uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do at Quavio? So my name is Wayne Coburn, and I am a product manager who supports our what we call our intelligence and data science pillars. So my teams are building all of the really cool data science stuff that you're going to see in the product. Awesome. I have been wanting to have you on for a long time. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'll ask you the question that we're asking everyone during this episode. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned this year? Can I go with two? Because I really can't choose between them. I can't blame you for that. Go ahead. What's the first one? Okay. So the first one is just how accessible data science is becoming with the new generative AI things, generative AI tools. You don't have to have a PhD any longer to do data science. And I think that's just really amazing and that's really powerful. And, and it's going to mean that the future is kind of amazing where everybody is allowed to do data science stuff without having lots and lots of education. The other thing is the appearance of AI on the edge. Like a mm. lot of devices now are coming with AI built in. And I mean, some of it's pretty simple, probably if then statements, whatever. But, you know, there's also some really cool stuff. I've been playing with my new Pixel phone and, you know, it can automatically remove background noise from videos mm. and do all sorts of other cool things. And yeah, I'm, I, I think it's going to be really cool to have these tools at our disposal, not just on our laptops, but, you know, sort of in our day to day life. Yeah, I agree. I, I think removing background noise from your phone is something that probably five years ago, you would have just laughed and said, like, I don't know, maybe eventually. <laughs> but the fact hey, that hey, it's just out of the box right now. Yeah, or I could... Five years ago, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to upload it into the cloud and there's going to be some offline processing and then I'll be mm -hmm. able to download the video again. And now I can just sort of hit a button on my phone and it actually happens on the device. And that's what I meant by Edge AI because I think, yeah. I think that's really cool and there's going to be a lot of things like that. Yeah, I'm honestly really interested to see where the future of that lies. What can we, I guess, to excuse the pun, but it's not actually going to end up being a pun, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm interested to see where this ultimately goes, because just what is on the cutting edge of this, if you'll forgive the pun, in terms of what we're able to do on a device in the future? You know, I think it's going to be it's going to end up blowing our minds. You know, like cars are already have this with like self-driving things in cars. It's in our phones. What can it do in our refrigerators and our ovens and mm. other things like that? I think there's I don't know. But I'm sure there's just some really cool things that we're going to be seeing come up as time goes on. An AI smart toaster, like mm -hmm. that's actually able to look at how brown the toast is and adjust the heating times. And you don't actually turn it to a random number, but the AI and, and the <laughs> optical sensors are actually able to give you the perfect piece of toast every single time, no matter how hot the toaster is. <laughs> that's going to get rid of one of our favorite games in data science. We give you the brand, like we give you the model of the toaster. We give you mm -hmm. a picture of the toast and you have to guess what number it was. <laughs> but but to your point the fact that that is a game that we do that as a joke like it, it points to there is something very real here of there's a real improvement i was thinking you know could your you brought up the idea of a fridge could it potentially like learn it understands if you're vegan it's not going to suggest a meal for you that is not going to fall within your actual dietary restrictions yeah 
or even just something as simple as like in our fridge, because I also have two kids and they're constantly leaving the door of the fridge cracked. And so a lot of times the produce will end up getting frozen because of pumping in too much cold air. And what if it gets really smart about understanding the overall temperature distribution in the fridge and is able to use fans and other things to make sure that the stuff that's, you know, by the door is getting kept cold, whereas the other stuff is not freezing. So you have no more frozen lettuce. Yeah. And I guess, honestly, these play together. I think the two Mm -hmm. topics that you brought up, because if we want to really like if we want to see the expansion into all of these edge use cases, like, you know, on the edge use cases, not Mm -hmm. fringe use cases, uh, they're, they're kind of core AI use cases. But to really do that quickly, we do need data science to kind of expand beyond, you know, people like me who did go to a PhD program for a lot of years. You don't need that necessarily to do a lot of really high value data science work. Exactly. And also, like I mentioned that I have kids and I think that it's going to open up a entire world of analysis that they're going to be able to do, you know, in high school and in college, they'll be able Mm -hmm. to accomplish things that, you know, when I was in school, we could not have even dreamed of. Yeah. And it'll be accessible and it'll be easy for them to do. And then they'll be standing like they'll be that like if they do go into a PhD program, they'll be that much further ahead. And yeah, and then everybody building anything, any sort of entrepreneur can now start using these tools to really help them get a head start and get, you know, be more competitive. So it honestly reminds me a lot of mobile development, the exact pattern that you brought up. I think when I was going through high school and college, you were just getting to the point where developing your own mobile app was something that like a really industrious CS student might do. Now it feels like that's just very accessible. It's as long as you have a little bit of programming skill, almost anyone could go out and do that. And seeing AI get to that point would honestly just, there are things that we probably aren't even thinking of right now that in 10 years are going to be incredibly commonplace because so many more people will be contributing their thought to this. Yes. And that's going to be really, really cool. So yeah. Yeah, I agree. These are very cool things in data science (laughs) that you learned about this year. So thanks for the discussion. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been great. Happy to join anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'll hold you to that. We'll have you back soon. Okay, thanks. And now we have with us Mike. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. How's it going? It's been a little bit since I've joined the podcast, but excited to be back on. Yeah, you know, this is the first time that you and I have been on the same episode at the same time. So is that right? Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, you know, this is a momentous occasion for us personally. <laughs> this is huge, man. There's nothing bigger. This is really big. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Just some context before we get started. Could you tell the audience, you know, who you are and what you do here at Clavia? My name is Mike Galley. I am a senior data scientist with Clavia. I've been here for a little over two and a half years now, which is quite a while at a fast growing company. And been around the block a little bit in data science in terms of the types of projects I've worked on, but more recently focusing on forecasting and supporting our revenue forecasts. Very cool. Well, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to ask you the question that we're asking everyone today. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in the last year? Yeah, so it's actually not something that I personally have worked on. I think when you personally work on things, 
other people find it interesting, you find it, you know, once you get into the weeds, maybe it doesn't get as you're too close to it to kind of mm. appreciate the mysteriousness. Right. So it's really the arm's length work that right. you um, see others do. And the one thing that got me was the work to help protect artists' art essentially online from generative AI. And so essentially there are tools out there that will poison artwork by changing pretty specific sets of pixels so that when the the artwork is included in generative AI training sets, it completely changes the outputs of that AI. So there were some studies done where the group who created this tool poisoned something on the order of a couple hundred images, and they were essentially able to make the generative AI show a picture of a cat when you asked for a dog. There are a couple of other you know, examples where they essentially poisoned one word into a, another word. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of the craziest to me was if you think about a cat and a dog from an AI's perspective, they're not totally different, right? I mean, they're both four-legged creatures, ears, nose, all that, the tail. But from a human perspective, they're very different. Mm -hmm. So just what they were able to do with relatively limited number of poison data points was really fascinating to me. Yeah, that's not as many as I would expect to be required there. I mean, did they take like a very, I guess, specific or intentional approach to where they were poisoning and how, or was it, did they just find that that was kind of the number that was necessary to get them over the threshold to that misclassification? So they show a couple of steps in terms of what happens when we introduced 50 poisoned images, what happens when we introduced 100, and then I think 300 was the next mm -hmm. threshold. And even at 50, like the images started getting weird, but at 300, it was like very clearly just a different picture. So yeah, I don't know the exact process for the pixel selection, like how they determined which pixels, but it is not noticeable to a human eye. So the poisoning is like they're picking specific pixels that aren't enough to ruin the image from a human's right. perspective but are enough to ruin the training that would occur on that image. But the numbers that they used for more widely available models is they would probably have to poison upwards uh, multiple thousands of images mm -hmm. and make sure those got introduced into the models before they started seeing a major effect there. Right. Which is, you know, on the order, of, you know, on the scale that these models take in images that's not that many you know so yeah, I, it really yeah. isn't that many which is kind of right. weird to think right. about yeah you definitely need to send me this so i can i can read over this work this is really interesting yeah um, no absolutely so the tool is self is called nightshade it was developed by researchers i believe at the university of chicago you may want to double check me on that one but yeah they essentially developed it in mind to protect artist copyright 
which when you think about generative AI as a developer and as data scientist, you can be a little bit reckless with the data that you ingest into these large language models because what's available online isn't necessarily available to use in a commercial way. Right. And so I appreciate the fact that, you know, as a data scientist, it can be hard to identify what's actually you're allowed to use versus what you're not. And so the idea that, you know, there's someone out there kind of taking the other side of it and working to protect artist copyright, you know, I find valuable in the ecosystem of AI. You know, I think one of the cautions against generative AI is that we're able to produce content now at a much faster rate. And so you have these more historic mechanisms of producing content. You know, think of an artist painting a painting, right? Or a photographer going out and trying to find the right picture. You know, these are time intensive processes that take a lot of thought. They take a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of creativity. It's not just, you know, they're not throwing things at the wall and seeing what works. There's, you know, intention behind each and every creation. And with the advent of generative AI, that can be lost a little bit because, you know, anybody with a prompt can generate something. And when you're able to generate content at the rate we are now able to, content tends to lose its meaning a little bit. So being able to protect that kind of original mechanism, it's not just fascinating to me as a data science problem. It's also fascinating to me as you know a human problem because part of the value of art is the time it takes to produce it, at least from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So this specific kind of ability to poison generative AI in order to protect copyright to me is really a fascinating area because it kind of takes that side of we do need to protect how you know we create these art pieces these artworks right yeah i think what's interesting about this whole conversation that we're having is that this is an entirely new phenomenon like last year's year review we were talking about how dolly 2 just took the world by storm and like that was kind of the start of all of this was like maybe a year and a half ago at this point and these are kind of totally new ethical questions kind of at the, the intersection of ethics and, and technology that we're facing as a society like if you don't want your art to be fed into one of these things, you know, what do you do? Or like the likeness of your image, you know, a lot of these are just capable of generating art in a certain artist style or like generating an image of a certain person, even if that artist or that person never consented to that being created in that way. And it kind of neatly gets around specific, you know, intellectual property laws because it's not generating the exact same thing. It's just almost the exact same thing. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how quickly this defense has come up, given that this has only been a problem for like a little over a year, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that kind of has me troubled about generative AI is how good it's going to be. Yeah. And, you know, probably it's going to take another year or so, maybe two. But in the near future, we are going to be coming across deep fakes that are indistinguishable from right. real video. Yeah. 
that has a lot of implications in a lot of places. And so I think this is, you know, kind of a first example of like, how do we protect the difference between what an AI can generate and reality? You know, this is where we're specifically focused on art with this poisoning mechanism, but, you know, it kind of lends itself to the question of, should we also be doing some type of pixel replacement in video feeds that we're feeding these generative AIs mm-hmm. so that when the generative AIs are producing their own videos, they aren't producing lifelike videos. They're producing slightly off videos, right? It doesn't seem like there's going to be a great way to protect us from those those types of things. So, you know, what are the ways we can protect ourselves? And this is a really good mechanism is this poisoning where you're not making something, you aren't changing it from a human's eyes because it is such a fine replacement, but you are changing it from a training perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this approach would be hard to take with text just because text doesn't really have parts of it that a human is not going to (laughs) see. But I have been seeing examples of this with audio as well. I mean, for one thing, there is a, you know, stable diffusion for audio, which is not really as widely used or known as for images, but same idea, you, you know, you can say like, create something that sounds like it was made by this artist and um, there are models that can do this i'm pretty sure there's an artist i forget what country she's from might be australia not 100 percent sure about that but there is an artist out there who said anybody who wanted to create a song with her likeness using a generative ai model was free to do so they just had to pay her some royalties i know that grimes said that anyone can use her voice for ai I don't think that she's asking for royalties, but I'm not familiar with this uh, potentially Australian person, but <laughs> maybe the Australian thing, um, you know, I'm uh, hallucinating a little bit with that. <laughs> I like that hallucinating is becoming more part of the data science vernacular as it, you know, <laughs> relates to yes. generative AI. <laughs> yeah, I figured it was appropriate since we're right. here talking about generative AI. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, both in terms of art generation, but also for deep faking people's voices, which is going to be a compelling part of deep fake videos, I could see this kind of poisoning being used in audio generation as well. It seems like the kind of data that could be poisoned in a similar way. Yeah. So the problem that exists with it is not the only problem, but one of the problems that exists is it's hard to retroactively change everything on the internet because the internet (laughs) is the internet. But yeah, for new things, it's definitely something that should be in consideration. Yeah, with text, it's a little different. You would have to change all of the ordering of the words, but they would still be recognized as the same word. It, yeah, it, would totally, really, yeah, it, it wouldn't work. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, this was a really interesting one. And we will post a link to the article that you shared along with this episode notes medium. And yeah, thank you for coming on and sharing this really interesting project with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to hear what uh, other people talk about. Yeah. Uh, coming out soon i'll let you know and we are joined on the podcast by lilia lilia welcome back hi i'm lilia i'm a full stack data scientist and i've been working at clavio for almost two years now awesome great to have you back on i know we talked about anomaly detection in the past but 
the question that we have here, the question that I'm asking everyone today is, what is the coolest data science thing that you learned about this year? Yeah. So for me, one new statistical technique I learned this year is called uplift modeling. And it's a technique used to predict individual level treatment effects. So if you have an A-B test that you run, for example, it's completely randomized. And normally when you run an experiment, you're kind of trying to estimate the impact of your change or the difference between the two groups, A and B. But with uplift modeling, you can apply some different statistical techniques to instead predict and estimate individual level treatment effects. So instead of trying to measure how much better is B than A, instead you're trying to measure how much better is B or A for different individuals who might have different characteristics. Yeah, I think the answer to this is probably somewhat obvious to me, but I'd like to hear because I imagine there are sides of this that I'm not thinking of. Why is this your pick? Why is this such a cool thing that you learned about this year? Yeah, so I think for me and specifically like teams at Clavio, I thought this was like a cool thing to learn about because it has such a direct translation to problems that we could solve at Clavio. Mm -hmm. So right now our customers are able to run A-B tests and generate very interesting insights on, for example, which email campaigns are doing better or worse. But we can see a direct use case for Clavios where maybe they could see that certain email campaigns do better for certain people and other people might prefer different email campaigns. So I found it very cool because it was directly something that we could start looking into and learning about how this could help our customers, which was exciting to me. Yeah, that's exactly what jumped out to me, too, is like. You brought up the idea, like you literally said it in the introduction there, A-B testing, that's a feature we have. Like, <laughs> So yeah. it's so directly applicable. That's really cool. I guess I'm curious, and we don't have to go too far in depth here, but just since this is such an interesting area, like how does it work? Like very basics. Yeah. So on the statistical side, uplift modeling is slightly different from normal predictive models in that it's trying to predict the treatment effect of the different groups, so A versus B, rather than like the difference mm -hmm. between the two groups. And so kind of the idea here is usually in, for example, an A-B test for email campaigns, we're looking at whether or not a person clicked, for example, as our mm -hmm. outcome. And there are cases where a person might have clicked regardless of whether they received A or B. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're trying to measure whether the person like clicked because they received B. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of adding in that causal element that always, <laughs> I mean, that always makes things more complicated. <laughs> exactly. And hopefully these can also translate when you have different costs associated, mm -hmm. different variations. So that's something that you can also incorporate into these models and also, yeah. you know, more than two different things you're testing. Yeah. And the different costs, that's again, something jumping out immediately like, oh, interesting. That's really relevant to us here at Clavio too, with multiple different types of messages that you can send and, and things along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. This is exactly the sort of thing I love hearing about because it's just, you know, you hear about the topic and it's immediately obvious how there are so many use cases for it just right out of the gate. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's also very encouraging that a lot of the research in this area is typically done using email campaigns, for example, mm. 
because they're such a common and relatively easy way to set up an experiment and study these causal effects. Yeah, that's really cool because that is something we run into a lot of times is there will be like a model in the research, but it was a study that comes from economics and they might have been looking at like the effects of different market measures. And it's like, well, you know, the model itself seems like it might be relevant, but we have to translate from that use case and there might be something that gets lost in the translation, but like directly using email campaigns. That's actually really cool. I didn't realize that aspect of things. Yeah, it's happened a lot in the different literature related to this I've read this year, which is also very encouraging for where we're at. Yeah, very cool. Well, this is a great answer. Thanks, Lilia, for coming on and telling us about the coolest thing you learned this year in data science. Of course. Thanks for having me, Michael. And we are joined by Eric. Eric, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you here again. It's been a couple months since we had you on. So could you remind the audience who you are and what you do at Clavia? Yep. I am Eric Silberstein. And up until about a year ago, I was our VP of data science. Uh, But for the last year, I have been a technical advisor to Clavio. And working a lot in kind of the tech writing side of things and kind of our, our way of communicating out with the world what we do, right? Yes. One of my responsibilities as a technical advisor is Clavio.tech, which is our external tech blog. And the cool thing about like me working on that is over the last year, I've worked with so many of our engineers way beyond the people that I used to work with. And I've been, you know, learning things all up and down the stack that we have here at Clavio. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to get you on this episode. The fact that you've gotten exposure to so many different sides of what we do at Clavio and just what happens in tech in general. So I'm really interested to hear your answer to the question. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned in 2023? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer I'm going to give is probably the answer that like 90% of people are going to give, but <laughs> it's LLMs. I mean, you know, chat mm. GPT, we have Clavio, we were playing with GPT-3, you know, even before December of last year, mm-hmm. uh, but even playing with it, I don't know. I just don't think I fully got it until chat GPT came out. And actually, if you look at our tech blog and you, you look at like, just even me personally, the the number of times I've like written something on my mind being changed by doing various exercises with chat GPT over the last year. It's just, I don't know, it was mind blowing a year ago and it's still, you know, I sort of still not used to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like most recently, well, first of all, one thing I think a lot of people is are probably shocked by is how much chat GPT has become part of our workflow. I think for me personally, probably like 20% of the time, something that I would have gone to Google before Or I wouldn't have even gone to Google because I sort of had some intuition that it'd be too hard to chase it down. Mm -hmm. I now go to ChatGPT as my first Hmm. place to do a search. And so it's it's crazy that a habit that was built up after so many years. And it's not that I'm forcing myself because I want to be using the latest technology. It's absolutely become just in my mind, that's the place to go for certain types of questions and queries. So that's been interesting. But then in the uh, drive from Boston to New Jersey, and I had my wife and my kids were in the car, I was playing with ChatGPT using the voice-to-text and text-to-voice stuff. And I played 20 questions with it. Mm. And it's just so remarkable that this general purpose language model can do so many different things and do them so well. And it can play a game of 20 questions with you. And it can understand you. And you can understand it. And of course, sort of, sort of even more amazing when you're doing that just by talking to it and listening to it while in, in a moving vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it's and actually, I posted on Clavio.tech the transcript. Actually, it's been nice that ChatGPT now has a button you can click to get like a publicly consumable version of whatever you're oh, chatting yeah. with it, you know, that anybody can see. But anyway, it's just unbelievable 
that this works and that it works so well and that it has such a good understanding. And then I also, what I wrote about in this blog post was like, but I also realized at the end of the day, wait a second, when it says, okay, I'm thinking of something because of the way it works, it's not allowed to like, it doesn't have like a secret notepad where it could write, let's say it thinks of, you know, Turkey. It can't like write down Turkey. So I'm like, wait a second, how is it thinking of something? What I realized what it's actually doing is it's, as we keep playing back and forth, you know, it's just staying consistent with what it's done all along. So at any given point, it could be like, okay, you human, I think you've asked me enough questions and it seems like you're making a good guess. And the particular guess you've made now is consistent with every answer I've given you previously. So I'll now say you're correct, which is sort of <laughs> almost weird because it made me feel like, wait a second, this thing's just toying with me, which, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not like an illegitimate way to play. Most humans couldn't possibly do it that way because they wouldn't be able to keep track in their heads. They'd be better off picking something and sticking with it. But it is I find it just so fascinating. And another thing I find fascinating is when you get used to when you get used to being understood in the way that an LLM understands you, it's very hard to go back to a different type of user interface. And I just mm. give a very specific example. As I was in the car doing this thing, and at some point I'm like, okay, done playing that. Uh, let's go to Spotify. And I really wanted to interact with Spotify with the same ease that I could interact with a large language model. I, I did try to use, or, you know, I just, I think it's like this, the way it must, I don't know if it's my phone or the car or whatever, but it's some sort of Siri feature where you can tell Siri what you want to listen to, but it didn't get what I wanted. And I couldn't sort of mm -hmm. be vague. Mm -hmm. You sort of see something similar, I think, in the feature that we released at Clavio, where you can use natural language to define segments. Like, you know, if you yeah. were talking to a human and that human was like operating Clavio for you, and they were really good at using our segment builder, you'd be completely legit to say to them, oh yeah, I want an engaged segment. And the human wouldn't necessarily come back at you and be like, wait, what exactly do you mean by engaged? You know, they'd understand, yeah. oh, engagement, you know, the user had been on your website or opened an email or, you know, clicked on an SMS link in the last 30 days, you know, sort of like a, whatever fairly common definition of engaged was, you know, and then of course you could refine it and you could be like, wait a second, you left out mm -hmm. this, add that now. When you see people using that new feature we built, it's it's just so obvious that, for certain types of things, a natural language interface that lets you be, it's not only faster, it's sort of just better because you can be vague and then you can refine. And that level yeah. of sort of vagueness combined with refining, which you sort of see it in a sense in a, a contrived version when you're playing 20 questions, it's very different than any of the, you know, the old style sort of if then trees that like, you know, Alexa or, you know, Siri were based on like, don't get me wrong, the text to speech and speech to text that have been around for years. And those things is amazing. But mm -hmm. the fact that it was getting, you know, more or less translated into sort of an if then tree seemed great too, until something so much better came along. So, yeah. right, as you can hear by me blabbing on and on. Yeah, it's like, even after this technology being out for a while, I just can't get used to it. And then the other thing is, and then I'll shut up, is it's so eerily similar to how humans work that, you know, I'm not so sure is it that the technology is so amazing or that our human brains are really not as great or yeah. as different as we thought they could. And, and in particular, the idea that so much goodness comes from effectively sort of, you know, figuring out the right way to complete something, you know, what is probably going to come after this sentence that's that maintains some degree of consistency with the sentences I've said so far, you know, maybe it turns out that just a lot of what we as humans do is not all that different from that. And I definitely, you know, like, again, in terms of like, you know, I think in every new age of computers, we start to see how our human minds work differently. And what does it mean to process mm -hmm. within our own brains? And I definitely, you know, you know, people who like do business process stuff, I'm sure, you know, like they think about how much that's similar to like traditional programming. When I'm doing fiction writing, 
I'm increasingly like, yeah, I'm just being like an LLM, you know, because some random process somewhere makes me say that my character, I don't know, to take a contrived example, but my character walked up to the third floor. Well, obviously next, they're going to do things on the third floor. And how much of our human creativity is about, you know, a little bit of randomness combined with then trying to come up with something that has a reasonable probability of following that randomness mm -hmm. while maintaining coherence. So, okay, now I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I mean, I think you went into a lot of depth on this is an answer we've gotten from people, but I think we've gotten kind of different sides of the problem. It's, oh, like the way that you can use LLMs for insert specific task is very interesting. I don't think we've really gotten just an overview of like why the advancements in LLMs in general over the last year have been so fascinating. I don't think we've gotten this lens on things. And I think it's good to hear this side of things because it's easy to forget when you work closely with this technology that it is such a quantum shift, that it is like such a new thing. And I don't know, such an advancement in how we use tools like this. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, of course, there'll be the usual generational thing of some people will and already are growing up with this. And, yeah. you know, they somewhat take it for granted. And they're probably building a great intuition for what it can or can't do. I think all of us yeah. are doing. But, you know, I think my kids are blown away by it, but not to the same extent I am because I don't know, they didn't sort of grow up with procedural programming in the same way. It doesn't shock them as much that a computer should be able to do this. In the same way that Google search probably shocked some people more than it shocked me when it first came out. <laughs> right. I mean, I remember, you know, I was using what AltaVista or whatever the other things were before. And as soon as Google came out, like instantly it was better and I flocked to it, but it never surprised me that it could work. You know, I don't think I'm just like revisionist history in my own mind. Like it's like, yeah, sure. It's a really good index. And they like did the smart thing around, you know, essentially using the citation method to decide which pages are more useful. But that all seemed, you know, that was like easy to wrap your mind around and you mm -hmm. know, it wasn't shocking. It's like, oh, this is just so brilliant how they did it. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Well, thank you for going through why that was the most interesting thing that you learned about in 2023 in data science. And it was great to have you back on, Eric. All right. And up next, we are talking with Matt. Matt, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I believe it is your first time joining us. So we are especially excited to have you here today. Matt, we're going to be asking you the same question that we're asking everyone on this episode. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? Yeah, so I have a couple of sort of tangentially data science things that I've done this year. I spent a lot of the year working on miscellaneous forms of DS in production. And so a lot of the things that I've worked on have kind of focused on like getting services up and running and being stable cleaning up code to make it more efficient and stuff like that. And especially trying to put like processes or checks or things in place in order to help me not like shoot myself in the foot as I'm going along. So yeah, happy to give more context on basically any of these. Cool. I mean, what is cooler than best practices? Really nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I'm curious to start, what were some of the issues that you were running into that kind of brought about this focus on process? Yeah, so in a past life, well, actually, basically all of my experience has been in Python and in R. My last job is pretty heavily in R. Uh, I suspect that a lot of people listening to this know that those are both dynamically typed languages and as a result, don't have like a compiler or something of that sort to tell you, for instance, if you, I don't know, try and reference a variable that hasn't been declared yet. 
And in the past, especially in my last job, I spent a lot of time doing sort of one-off fixes to problems where like I would ship a change and it turned out that there was some edge case or something that caused something to be undefined, basically. Like you might imagine there was like an if statement that depended on an environment variable that was like set to something on my local and not set in production. And then like we would have a job that was running and we'd find out two hours into the job that like that job failed in production because something wasn't set to a value. And that is a real headache. It can slow down your, well, just like slow you down in general a lot because you have to go back and like patch things all the time. And it just kind of makes it harder to, I don't know, like be confident in changes that you're shipping that I think this is sort of a problem in both Python and R. And so recently I've been relying a lot on linters, which are extremely helpful for solving problems like this. And so in Python, there are some pretty popular things. One is a static type checker called MyPy. Another one, well, there are a couple that are more like linter linters, like PyLint or Rough, that in theory can like help you with, with things like this. So if so, for instance, MyPy, if you, I don't know, have some function that's expecting an input to be a string and you make a change and that change accidentally passes a list of strings to that function, the theory at least is that MyPy will yell at you for trying to do that. And you'll know upfront that you've made that mistake. That in intention is pretty similar to like a genuine type checker in a statically typed language. It's just that Python and R are not that. And adding these types of linters and like type checks and stuff has saved me a whole lot of time the past year, largely because I seemingly have a tendency to just miss problems like this when I'm reading the code. Yeah. So I think that's been especially cool. And it's sort of like a just a way to approach something close to what like software engineers would be kind of treating as like a table stakes thing that needs to be in place before like shipping to production. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if I've gone into my Python rant on this podcast before, but you know, because of this and because they don't teach you this in school and like Python is just the language that everyone starts with. It just teaches everyone such bad programming practices and like, you see it in code for people who haven't been coding for a long time. They're just, you know, doing things with variables that they, they probably shouldn't. And, you know, it ends up in more complex systems causing all the stuff that you're talking about and like not just wasting time, but I think it is so frustrating and ends up kind of taking a lot of the fun out of coding and, and data science work. So yeah, I got to agree that doing this kind of type checking and linting is really important for building complex systems and, saving time, but also, you know, making it enjoyable to do this. And nothing's worse than being a few hours into some run and it breaks because of some really specific issue that is not the thing that you actually care about solving. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, in my experience, at least, it's been especially bad for sort of like DS or data engineering slash ETL problems, because pretty often we have jobs that take hours and hours to run. And so if you have a job that takes a long time to run and you find out five hours into your job that you made a mistake that a type, you know, a type checker would have caught. That's a pretty frustrating place to be. Yeah. And so saving yourself those kinds of headaches is often, or at least sometimes even more helpful than like in engineering world where, I don't know, maybe you deploy something breaks and you roll back and it's done in five minutes here. It's like, you've totally moved on. You've context switched off to some new project or whatever, something else that you're working on. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, you know, turns out that this change that I put in didn't actually work. You find it at runtime and then you're like back to square one trying to fix something that you thought you had done, basically. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I like just had this experience for a personal project where I 
you know, set something to run overnight. And I really kind of wanted the result of something that was going to take eight plus hours to run. Went to sleep, <laughs> hour or so into it, it broke because of this exact reason. And yeah, uh, it's not, it's just not fun. It's just not a good time. So, all right, that's a great tip. Appreciate that. What else have you been uh, learning in, in your journey to improve your Python processes and make Python more fun to use? Yeah. So my other favorite thing I think I learned this year was the power of just like hard coding stuff in production, whether that be especially models uh, in data science world. So there are a couple of times that I've done this already this year. So early in the year, I was still in my last job and we built a school recommendation engine. Basically, it was a recommender system. But instead of having, I don't know, like any kind of recommendation model running in real time, like genuinely running predictions through a recommender model in real time. We just like hard coded the recommendations for every school. So like if you were on a school's page, for instance, um, we would, you know, pick like the seven most similar schools to that school or whatever. We did some tricks, but you know, that's basically a fine mental model. And we literally just like created a JSON blob and built it into, so we're using Docker to deploy. So we basically like loaded the JSON into our Docker image, baked it in there. And then production, we would just like load into a dictionary from disk. I've done this here recently as well. We did a very similar thing here with sort of a homemade, like in-memory implementation of a vector database, where instead of having a genuine database of embeddings and like a bunch of content, we just hard-coded the content title, you know, titles of the things in the corpus the actual content of the things in the corpus, the embeddings, and baked it in to our Docker image that we were deploying as JSON also, and basically just load it at container boot time in production and go from there. The reason for this, I guess there are a couple reasons, but the biggest one is like having fewer moving parts in a system that you're shipping, especially for MVP, can be a really good idea. There's just a lot fewer points of failure if you're not, for instance, like spinning up a database. If everything is just a Python dictionary, there's fewer, way fewer things that can go wrong. Generally, that also means that it's like easier and faster for you to deploy the thing initially, just like to get something live and off the ground. And it might turn out that that is sort of good enough for your MVP or whatever. So I think that's a big thing. And then, I mean, another benefit that I didn't really consider initially was just like the performance of the service would be way better if we just hard code everything. And so... Or in the vector database example, sort of like do operations in memory as opposed to going out to some vector database, like a pinecone or whatever, or something like Postgres, which has vector extensions like PG vector uh, for the same thing. So this has been pretty fun for me because it's just like, I really like shipping stuff fast and sort of iterating. And I think that it's been cool to just like do things that, I don't know, I would have thought some, when I was in college or something, sometime I, I would have thought like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Like we need to build a whole system to like, contain all the information that we need. And like, we need to be able to run predictions in real time because like, how are we going to personalize stuff for every user? And the reality is maybe if we just get the thing off the ground, it'll be good enough. And this way we got like blazing fast performance for a lot of things, services that these services that are running are like super reliable, which is really great. And then, so we can ship them. And then if we want to spin up a real vector database or whatever in the background, we can do that once the service is live, which has been pretty fun. So that I found to be a super, super useful uh, I guess, sort of pattern in the past year that I've repeated a couple of times. Nice. Yeah. You know, that's a funny one because I feel like hard coding. Well, it sounds like you had better habits than I did in college because like when I was <laughs> learning how to program in college, I was like, yeah, you just hard code it. Wait, you're not going to need to like, you know, have this be a variable that you change. But hard coding is kind of one of those things that you do 
when you're learning to code because you don't know that it's a terrible idea a lot of the time and that you need to like be able to change you know values but then I, I feel like people can move so far away from it like you were saying where you're just like this is a terrible idea we, we should never hard code things but then in reality it actually is kind of often the right choice because you can you know you don't need to build up a whole service that deals with something if you know what all the values are going to be and you're just kind of you know pre-computing it or just holding on to it in memory just makes things a lot more simple if that is the right solution so i feel like that's a it's like an especially like pro tip it's like you know you start off hard coding and then you learn not to hard code and then eventually yeah. that maybe hard coding is sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah a past coworker and friend of mine would refer to building things iteratively as being kind of akin to building a skateboard and then building a bike and then building a car and mm. you might think the hard coding things or baking things into an image as JSON or whatever solution as being sort of in the build a skateboard with the idea being that like you can build a skateboard really quick, you get it out there. And then once it's out there, you can figure out how to build the bike. And maybe, right. maybe the bike is like the actual database or the online recommendations or whatever. But those pretty often don't need to be live for like your first iteration of something. Uh, that's a good one as well. Matt, if that is all then it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your best practice tips for us. The coolest stuff that you learned about data science in 2023. Yeah. Have a good rest of your year. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. Next up on the podcast, we are joined by Elias. Elias, welcome. It's your first time on the podcast, I believe. It is. And I'm fairly new to Clavio. I joined just, well, probably exactly one month ago. I'm on a new team called Smart Audiences. That's part of intelligence. Excellent. I'm sure we will be asking more about that team in the future. I'm sure we'll have you on a future episode. But for now, I'll go ahead and kick us off with the question that I'm asking everyone during this episode, which is, what is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? So that would have to be, I got a chance to use ChatGPT and got to use it in a variety of ways. And a couple of them really stuck out. And I'm assuming as it progresses to version four, which it already has, and 4.5 and later it's going to get even better but I gave it some code and I asked it to try to optimize it for me and it was just like calculate the power of x and I was just doing the multiplications one after another and it came up with how to do it better hmm. explained it to me and wrote the code for me and I could just use it as a drop-in replacement hmm. so that was one use case the other was, so I wrote some code. I was trying to, I think, calculate the average, but I was, I had the nominator and the denominator the other way around, or mm. I was summing or counting the wrong thing. And I asked it, what's wrong with my code? Mm -hmm. And it went back. It told me what the problem was, gave me the corrected code and added a comment with, I made a change here. So it, like, again, it explained the problem and fixed it for me and gave it to me. And I think the third way I used ChatGPT indirectly was we had about five people do a toy coding example. And then I would do a blind test, the blind review as to whether a human wrote it or whether it was Gen AI assisted. And I ended up doing that, and I found that in one of them, it was calculating the number of buckets in a very weird way, which I've never really seen from a person. So I was pretty mm -hmm. sure that was the 
GenAI-assisted one, and it turned out that was the best example of the best code available or given to me to review, because instead of trying to produce a few thousand requests and publishing them all at once, it had semaphores so it could control the parallelization, which meant I got back less 500s because of the load on mm-hmm. my laptop. And it was the only one that ran successfully for all sites where it had to do something and scrape something. And it knew how to go and fetch the information it needed, which there were a variety of ways to display that information. But the other four examples, they just went to the first result on Stack Overflow and mostly copied what was there, which was not doing a great job with fetching the information that was needed. Hmm. So overall, I think it really helped bring up the quality of the code that was handed in. It's not going to do your job like for probably many, many years. It's like, yeah. like we don't have flying cars. They predicted we would. Like I don't think it'll do everything, but it can really help assist you in what you're trying to do and make you a lot more productive. Yeah. Right. I guess there's a big difference between trying to, you know, find a power of X versus, you know, writing a complicated service for like a modern application. So I think that's still very interesting, though, because we hear a lot like and honestly, I imagine we're recording this fairly early into the process of recording these. But I imagine we're going to hear a lot about ChatGPT on this particular episode because it is such a big advancement this year. But a lot of the use cases we hear about really are natural language like people speak. I think it's easy to forget that code is its own form of natural language. It is. And it was surprisingly good at naming variables. Some of the other examples I worked with where I asked it to comment some code for me or write some tests for me or translate to a different programming language. When I messed up the names of variables and just used like X and Y and removed the comments of my own and misnamed the function, it took significantly longer to produce what I was asking for. So it's pulling in context from everywhere, including like the variable names. And then it was changing back variable names to reasonable stuff based on what it was doing. Hmm. That's very interesting. I wonder to an extent, is that because a lot of the examples that you get online are people trying to model best practices? rather than just kind of writing it off the cuff. Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely a difference between if you're doing this with Python or Java, it seems to be like fairly close to human level and maybe a little better when it comes to Python, but it still struggles if you try to match it against someone who's very experienced with Java. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I have to imagine that languages that are newer, it might struggle on because there's just less out there to base something off of. Yeah, definitely. That's very cool. Awesome. I think the follow up question that I'll ask based off of this is for people who are kind of out there listening to this episode and they think, oh, this is an interesting idea. What do you think they should do next? Like, is this something that you would recommend people try out themselves? Is it relatively easy to do that? It was very easy to do that. And uh, with a free version or with a free account, I think you can make like 30-ish requests per day or per hour to ChatGPT 3.5. It's not the latest thing available, but just start getting to understand it, maybe how you would pose questions to it. I don't think we can just hide our heads in the sand and pretend that this doesn't exist The expectation at some point will be that you are using some form of system like this or many of them 
to make yourself more productive. And like, if you're not doing that, well, then you might fall behind. Hmm. It's a good reminder to people out there. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and talking about this, Ulysses. Thanks for having me. All right. And we are joined on the podcast next by Carola. Carola, welcome back. Hello, everyone. My name is Carola Leiva. I'm a product manager working in generative AI and experimentation at Clevio. Yeah, welcome back. I know we had you on at this point a while ago talking about talking to customers. So it's great to have you back on. Yeah, that was a very good conversation, Michael. You do a great job with this. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, I, I hope that this one is too. I'm going to ask you the same question that I'm asking everyone this episode, which is, what is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? Yeah, so probably something that everyone has heard so far is like, it's very much in every single LinkedIn, like, I mean, it's just everywhere, which is generative AI. I know it sounds super obvious, but I have learned a lot about generative AI because of the applications more than like mm -hmm. what it actually is. I think we all know what it is. We have some sort of like use it in different ways. But for me, it was very, very cool to learn how to use generative AI for things that are beyond creation of content. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things in that case? Because I think we've obviously, and actually on this podcast before, we've talked about using generative AI to uh, tell you what a good subject line might be. But what are some ideas outside of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question because is that we have used generative AI at Clevio for subject line, SMS creation, suggestion response in this SMS. And all of that have been like more than a year around. So it's like, it's something that Clevio is not really new at it. But this year we went beyond. We mm -hmm. went beyond and we used generative AI to create objects. So how do you take a natural language input to something that is more specific that you could potentially do with us, like in this case, a segment builder? We use a generative AI to create a segment. So that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and start off with just the question. Like, I imagine some people listening to this might just kind of think like, what? You made what out of how are you making that? That's not a language that I speak. How is this thing that's supposed to spit back a natural language giving you something that fits that pattern? Yes, that's one of the things that I was like very surprised when we were working on it because is that you can take this tool that actually understand like English, understand language, understand like created, creating like many of the things that we talk about and just use it to decompose something that is very complex, which is like a segment creation in different parts of the segment to like basically create the segment by taking the parts of the language that the person is speaking mm -hmm. or like saying. And for example, if I want to say engage segment 30 days, engage customers 30 days, I can take and find out that someone is referring to a time frame of 30 days, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. start taking those elements of the, the, the input to create a segment from those small components that mm -hmm. are coming from the input. So what we basically did is just taking that prompt and like generate small pieces to put it in a JSON schema and create a segment automatically for the customer. Yeah. And actually, I think that gets into exactly what I was going to ask next, which is trying to like hammer home exactly why this is such a cool thing. Did you run into any surprises on what it was able to pick up as as you point out, like a small piece, because I think something like 30 days, it's 
it's probably pretty clear that, okay, 30 days, like that's clearly a piece, like some time element. Were there any things that it was able to pick up as a piece that surprised you? A hundred percent. I like, I was very surprised that you didn't have to define everything for hmm. the system to know and understand what you were saying. So it's obvious if I say 30 days, is that that's kind of like, okay, I'm saying you 30 days, yeah. you, you know that I'm saying 30 days, but what if I tell you something super ambiguous and I don't tell you exactly mm-hmm. what are the components that you had to take and create the segment? What if I tell hmm. you engage 30 days instead of telling you people that have opened an email and click an SMS. If I tell you all the components, it's kind of like more straightforward. But if yeah. I tell you like something more ambiguous and the system can understand what I'm meant by that, that's surprising. That's like magic. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I think the word magic is really well chosen because that's where a lot of the power lies, right? Like the I could sit there and I could kind of outline the logical flow in words and have someone, you know, have the AI assistant basically put that into the actual logical flow for me. But the fact that I don't have to sit there and spell everything out, like that's actually where the power is, right? Yes. And not only because it's less time for the user to understand, because some users may know that engaged customers is up, like is certain things, but also it helps the customers that don't know. Right. I just want to know what... (laughs) I want to engage, like, I want to, like, reach out my engaged customers, but I have no idea what an engaged customer is. Oh. And I'm using that example a lot, but it could be more complex things. You don't need to know what actually is. We know yeah. for you. Like, imagine asking it for your VIPs. There's probably less of a fixed definition of that, but I imagine it can give you something pretty reasonable. Yeah, and that's the magic, because it's that you, you may feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of feel like I know what it is. But we give you something. You, of course, have the opportunity to check it or like modify mm-hmm. because, yeah. as you said, maybe I, I know what an VIP customer is. We we get you something that may not be perfect for you, right. but you can adapt it. And you don't yeah. have to start from scratch because we already gave you something. Yeah, that's huge, especially for businesses that maybe, you know, if there's a monetary value in VIP Maybe you're a t-shirt company and you sell relatively low dollar value items versus you sell refrigerators. (laughs) Your VIPs will probably look a little different. Exactly. And like, who knows better the differences in your business than you. So you Mm -hmm. want to check it for sure, but you don't have to start from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. I guess I don't want to go too far into this because obviously we're not here to talk about like the future roadmap, but I guess is one of the things that's so exciting about this, the idea that if like basically we've shown that it's able to make one type of object, the idea that it could probably make more. Yeah. I mean, like if we're not talking about the roadmap, but yeah. So this opened up a world where we can take what you're saying or like writing and create things for you. And how cool is that? That you don't have to like learn from the system. You can actually just say the system what to do. Yeah. I mean, that's like, At the moment, we already have a lot of people who kind of sign up and they've come from a YouTube tutorial. They know how to do one thing because they watched a YouTube video. And once they finish up with that one thing, they may not know what to do. Imagine the ease of use if you didn't even have to watch that video in the first place. (laughs) That would be great. That would be the dream. That'd be great. Yeah. Or, you know, after you do the one thing that you learned how to do in the video, then, you know, we're able to helpfully guide you to do other things. That's really cool. I think I see why this is your answer for the coolest thing that you learned about this year. A hundred percent. And the other thing is that 
you you also can learn by just like seeing the translation. I input mm. this, and this is what I get. Oh, so true. I maybe I can learn the builder by just looking at the two things and like, oh, okay, huh. got it. And now I understand better. Yeah, and that's like especially with the segment builder that you're talking about. I think for some people, and in or conditions are very logical and yes. very intuitive, and for some people they're not. So I think that's a great point to bring up is it can literally help you learn logic or more specifically the way that logic is used in this particular place. A hundred percent. So what we try to do is just making sure that we're not changing the logic of, of our yeah. system, but we're translated to a human language that people can check. And yeah. when they see those two side by side, they can understand, okay, this is the logic that you're using. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you, Corolla, for walking through. I, As they all have been, I've gotten a bunch of really good answers to this question so far, but I really, really like this answer. I think it exposes a lot of what's really cool about data science in general and specifically working on data science here at Clavio. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And now joining us on the podcast, we have Vish. Vish, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Zach. Excited to be here on the end of the year episode. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I I think it's been a while since you've been on the show. So just to remind our listeners here, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at Clavio? Yeah, of course. So I'm a data scientist here. I work on data science team doing a lot of natural language stuff. I've sort of been interested in LLMs and natural language for quite a bit of time. And yeah. All right. Very cool. So, Vish, same question everyone's getting today. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? Yeah, the cool thing I learned this year, not exactly data science related, is the importance of good UI and UX design. But I'll be talking about it, I guess, in the context of data science applications, because it was sort of crazy to me um, this year that ChatGPT blew up the way it did and start, kind of started this AI revolution, if you will. It's a lot of the innovation under ChatGPT was, of course, the underlying model, but a lot of the technology itself did exist before ChatGPT came out. Uh, for, for example, the, the same embedding models we have today existed before that. Text Davinci existed. Of course, it just wasn't as good. But the I think from the UX, UI side, one of the big innovations was moving it from this completion model to a chat model, which just made it so much more accessible, especially when they put it on a website and gave basically everyone in the world access. So, yeah. So, yeah, as ChatGPT kind of exploded in growth, you know, it clearly was more than just the underlying technology, as you note. So I guess, what was it about the chat GPT user experience that was so compelling and that made it so much more important and so much more useful than previous, you know, GPTs and previous embedding models of its type? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one aspect of it was just that the model was good. So when you spoke to it, it was able to respond to you. I think previous models ever used like GPT-2, for example, would just start spewing out garbage after a few tokens or words. But the other aspect of this, I think, was just approaching people in a format that they're like super familiar with. Completion, I don't think 
resonates with as many people as chat because everyone's been using chat for like a decade now, maybe even much more than that. Uh, so yeah, I think part of it was just, I'm not sure who came up with this idea. I'm not sure if I would have thought about it. It is really interesting that there are many complex things in data science and engineering and just like packaging it differently itself can sell it so well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when ChatGPT came out, there's a lot of, oh, look how impressive it is. You can get it to, you know, answer your question in a limerick form. Like it's a pirate who is obsessed with watermelons. But, you know, in addition to all the party tricks that it can do, it quickly revealed itself to be just very effective. Like, I think for a lot of questions, it's better than using Google or, or a major search engine. And it's not the only thing that came out, you know, recently that's kind of of its class. Like, I don't know if you've had the chance to use GitHub Copilot at all, but as far as a completion tool goes, like that, I just love that thing. It's really amazing. So I guess, what are your takeaways from this realization of the value of good UX and UI and design experience? Yeah, I think there are a few different things. I think now in general, I just start looking for little UI UX things just keep popping up at me because it's now more in my mind compared to years before. For example, for a project I was working on with GPT-4, if you've used it before, it takes a lot of time to generate. So I was thinking about how we can maybe like add a loading state or something for the user to, so that they know that, you know, they're not just sitting and waiting for something that has errored out. This is one of the smaller things, but on a larger scale, I'm still thinking about what other innovations we just haven't discovered. For data science, for example, we use XGBoost models just because they're explainable for many applications. But in the future, it could very well be that we have very good explainability for neural networks or you know, just like other models. But even if we had that technology, even if we had that innovation from an engineering standpoint, unless we can find a good way to present it to, I guess, stakeholders or whoever you want to present it to the world, if you will, it's not really going to have that big of an impact. And I think that's kind of my takeaway from the chat GPT thing and just how we can drive that experience. Yeah, so it's not just the power of the tool that you use, but how you present it and how people interact with it that ultimately determines how how useful yeah. or popular it is. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course. Yeah, I think for in general, data scientists have probably been thinking about this a lot because we work on a lot of projects that need to be presented to less technical stakeholders. Right. But yeah, this is just another example of it and another way to look at it, I guess. Yeah, I like this one because it's easy to look at ChatGPT and just be like, oh, the coolest thing of the last year or two were the advances in language models. But you're totally mm -hmm. right. It's the usability and it's the fact that they made it so accessible to just the average person that made it really take off and really change the way that everyone thinks about AI. I think a part of it was also that it was really, not, maybe bad is not the right word, but it had very little safeguards in the beginning. So it would be <laughs> funny little things and right. I guess potentially offensive things. And that sort of drove its publicity. Now they've pretty much got a lot of that to go, go away, at least from a usage side i'm not sure if the underlying model itself is less biased but right. um, yeah yeah and there were some interesting other ones you know like 
the Google Lambda model. It's kind of an interesting whole situation. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the Bing chatbot that had gotten into some dicey conversations that gave it a <laughs> good bit. Oh, yeah. Early on, yeah. I think I saw, I was reading this article, may have been shared it with other people in the team, but they essentially got GPT-4 to ask the person who was chatting with them to marry them and right. they got some interesting situations right. there. Yeah. Uh, philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely changed the experience as they've cleaned that up. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's been interesting to see people, you know, ask older GPTs to give pretty inappropriate information or the type of stuff that we don't want to be that accessible and the extent to which they've been able to adapt to that pretty quickly has been pretty cool to see because it's been a pretty short time frame that they've turned it around and made it something which at least feels while you're using it to be pretty safe. I haven't really tried to test the boundaries recently, but it, it seems like it's doing a good job with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it does a really good job. And I think that's part of the advantage of being first in the market. They have so much data now because right. basically everyone in the world has used it. They know how people interact with it. I was using bard i think which uses gemini pro last week just testing and playing around with it and it doesn't seem to have the same safeguards that chat gpt has it's definitely good it's, it came out like eight months later obviously so they've had more time to innovate but it's definitely not as good as gpt4's safeguards at the moment right and i think part of the reason is just that google doesn't have enough actual data right yeah. And, you know, I think the, I don't know, Google is claiming that Gemini is so much more powerful than GPT-4 and whatnot. But I think from a UX perspective, BARD is still not kind of as, I don't know, intuitive to use as ChatGPT. Like I find like ChatGPT is more helpful just for common answers or BARD will kind of trip over itself a little bit more. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think also because they have this data, BARD doesn't seem as good as GPT-4 when following instructions. Hmm. I think OpenAI has made a lot of, they've kind of looked at what people were trying to do with earlier models. For example, like giving it a lot of prompts to get it to not hallucinate, giving it prompts to essentially use only the information provided we give it in the context if you're doing something like retrieval augmented generation. And they've sort of incorporated these things into the model so it hmm. becomes easier and easier to prompt the model as they've developed it but this gemini that just doesn't have the same capabilities yet at least from my testing obviously i think that'll change as more people use it google is a big company so they will drive this forward but yeah yeah i'm curious to see how google does with this i think obviously at really large companies it's harder to move quickly and to get things done very efficiently. There's just kind of more internal friction to doing anything. But yeah, they definitely have that disadvantage. Like they kind of just got the the leftover scraps from ChatGPT. <laughs> like everyone who is tired of ChatGPT or yeah. somehow hadn't used it or, you know, for whatever reason, that's where Bard got a lot of their data. Well, thank you for bring this interesting topic to our attention. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about this? Anything else that our listeners should consider on this subject nothing else on my mind go limit test uh <laughs> dpt4 and gemini safeguards <laughs> that's a good <laughs> all right that's some good ending advice all right great well um vish thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for having me absolutely
And next up, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a bit since we've had you on. So I think let's go ahead and remind the audience who you are and what you do at Clavio. Sure. I'm Chris Fox. I'm a data science manager here at Clavio, and I oversee a number of projects in the communications area. Generally, people on my team are working in the NLP space. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question that I'm asking everyone this week, which is, what is the coolest data science thing that you've learned about this year? Well, I imagine you've probably gotten a lot of similar answers along this, but one thing that's been really cool for me is just seeing how good some of these large language models have become, especially in this past year. And one thing that I've really noticed, I think it's been kind of fun, is like just seeing how versatile they are for uh, quickly building and prototyping new models. So like things like ChatGPT, which have gotten a lot of buzz this year, you know, we've seen that they're obviously good for things like generating creative copy. But I think what's been sort of surprising to me is that like they're also really good at tasks that have typically always been solved with traditional uh, like supervised methods, such as like classification. Mm. And so like what's been kind of interesting is like you know, a lot of times we're in, we're in a spot where if we had the time, we would build a model for something. But, you know, time is always short. You have to kind of pick and choose where to uh, deploy your resources. But we've been finding that like you can like oftentimes get something off the ground pretty quickly with like just a you know simple prompt and like a prompt based model. Yeah, that's pretty interesting to me. But I'll ask just for the sake of consistency, why is this the coolest thing that you learned about this year? Like what the I guess the fact that they're good at these sort of tasks, why is that so specifically cool? That's a great question. I think one of the reasons I find it cool is just like we always have a backlog of work that we want to do. You know, one of the bottlenecks is that it takes a lot of time and sometimes it's almost impossible to get a lot of labeled data to be able to build mm. on supervised models. And so, yeah, you know, we're working on something right now. It's not released, so I can't talk about it too much. But the general idea is we're trying to uh, understand like sort of what are some of the topics that people are talking about and what are some mm -hmm. of like the sentiments around those topics. And so we did a lot of deep diving into papers, trying to understand like, you know, what are some of the classic methods out there for this? But what we found is that, you know, some of these like LLM methods are just, they're really fast. They don't require a whole lot of labeled data and we're able to get something off the ground pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I think it's easy to forget all of the human costs that go into data science. Like if you want labeled data, and it isn't something from like a publicly available data set, someone has to label that data. Absolutely. And yeah, that's like one of the challenges. Yeah, you have to either you know pay someone to do it. You have to give them good instructions on how to do it. Sometimes it just doesn't even like we don't even have examples of things that we could even mm -hmm. label. Like it's a new area where we don't have the training data to begin with. So yeah, this has allowed us to really sort of like quickly prototype in areas where like maybe this is sort of like a stopgap measure until we get a bunch of like examples that we can then go label and mm -hmm. build a more like, uh, you know, maybe a little more precise supervised method. But yeah, my sense is that this is a direction where data science is going to continue to evolve. I think I actually had a candidate recently I was speaking with um, in interviews talking about, you know, he kind of thought like AI might take over data science and one of my perspective on that. <laughs> I don't necessarily share that viewpoint, but I do think that like the opportunities for data science to sort of like leverage a lot of these tools to work faster, I'm definitely already starting to see that. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. I guess another question I've been asking a lot of people, I think this is another one where I think it's clear to someone in our position like, oh, this is a very cool application. This is a very cool like way to use this type of model. But you know, we're recording this mid-December. It's about to be kind of the holiday season. A lot of people are going to go home and, uh, you know, their families are going to ask them what they're doing at work. If you got asked about this topic, how would you explain to them why this is something cool? Oh, geez, that's a fascinating thing. Well, I think if you tell anyone that you're working with like chat GPT based models, they're already interested, right? I guess, I guess that's fair, right? It's been <laughs> in the news. It's in the headlines. 
<laughs> exactly. So I think that's already pretty fun. And the fact that, you know, I think what's enabled this to be so cool is that we're working with some of the most cutting edge models that are coming out. So mm-hmm. just like really staying on top of the developments there has been kind of exciting and telling people about some of that. Yeah. Even though, you know, maybe we're not taking advantage of like all the different models available, like just sort of being on the cutting edge in general is an exciting thing to yeah. talk about with your friends and family. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I think also what I really like about like the space that we work in and, and supporting the communications team is that a lot of our projects are things that ultimately go into customer facing features. And so it's really gratifying to see a lot of this stuff ship. And I think the fact that this stuff now is easier to build means that we can actually ship more features quicker. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully we'll have more things that we can share with our you know friends and family soon. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, explaining the coolest thing that you learned about in data science this year, Chris. As always, a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. All right. And now we are here with Manu. Manu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I believe that this is your first time on our show. We'd love to get a little bit of context for our listeners. Could you tell us who you are and what you do here at Clavio? Sure. Well, my name is Manu. I go Manu Manuel. I joined Clavio in mid-February 2023, so a little bit less than a year now. Before Clavio, I have work on different roles, different companies, different industries. Uh, I started telecommunications engineer, engineering back in Spain. I'm from Spain. I started working as a telecommunications engineer first and then quickly transitioned to data science. This was when, when I would say when big data was booming. And I started as a data scientist uh, in banking, started like progressing in my career, eventually became a data science manager, mostly working on the, I would say, credit risk and fraud space in banking. Eventually, I moved to San Francisco, worked for a fintech there doing similar things. But then at that point, like uh, running a team, then uh, work at Shopify, similar things, also like fraud, I would say, uh, and fraud prevention and payments. And I moved to Boston to East Coast and John Clavio, like I said, earlier this year as an engineering manager, first for product merchandising, working on recommender systems, both machine learning and non-machine learning, and then transition to this new team, originally called Embedded AI, now Natural Language Interfaces. But we're basically the engineering team, I would say, trying to bridge the gap between data science and the rest of the org and trying to make sure that we can prototype and build end-to-end products quickly, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah, the uh, the NLI team is doing a lot of really <laughs> interesting work here at Clavio, and I feel like it's kind of represents some of the cutting edge, cutting edge stuff that we're trying to get into our products. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. We are going to ask you the same question that we've been posing to everyone on today's episode. Manu. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? I would say it's not just data science. So I think it's a combination of things. The reason I, I picked this, this specific technology is because it's, I feel like many people are adopting it, but I think it's, I'm very optimistic about it, very excited about the use cases and we've implemented it in production, but I'm also like concerned, let's say about the future and how it may evolve. And for me, that the specific thing that I choose in is retrieval amended generation or how can we basically augment like uh, large language models with specific context, if that makes sense. So people call it like private context or like private documentation, but basically how do we augment like the knowledge of a large language model that is usually static or and a snapshot in time with private documentation or even like up-to-date documentation uh, that may also be public. That for me has been like one of the most interesting things. I think it's been booming a lot in many industries with many different applications. Some different people call these different things like context, Q&A, chats, however you want to call this, like there's a piece of like, how do we retrieve the right context and how do we augment a large language model? But yeah, that's been very interesting to me this year. I stumbled upon this technology with a GitHub repo, honestly, first. 
uh, it was called private GPT, and it was a way to basically right. talk to your own documents. And then we also started exploring as a company. We actually recently released like one product in limited availability, which is using uh, this exact same approach. That will be for me one of the most interesting things this year so far. Yeah. So you know, obviously, just GPT is a word on everyone's mind now in 2023, <laughs> but was not always the case. And yeah, as you mentioned, I'm not sure how much we're allowed to talk about this, but there's a product in development which uses this technology, Clavio. Uh, when did this first appear on your radar? Were you setting up private GPT? Was it kind of right mm -hmm. when it came out? Or was it in the context of this Clavio product that you were looking into this? It started actually before we started working on this specific pro mm -hmm. project. I think it was like, I mean, when people started using this and realized, okay, GPT is great. So I think that, so if I'm not mistaken, like I think GPT was like released when late 2022, but it boomed in early 2023, I would say. And then people started like adding, like creating tools around it, right? And I think that's where the boom of like the development iteration happened to, I would say so probably like first half of the year, uh, first quarter of 2023. So I think around that time, probably April or May, I stumbled upon this repository. I was like, oh, this is great. At that time, actually, I had just moved to Boston <laughs> mm. and I was going through these huge like lease contracts. And I remember like joking about just feeding the lease contract <laughs> to private GPT and ask <laughs> questions about it. But that's where I realized about the potential is like sometimes you're going like to very complex documents. Like, and I started thinking about like all of the applications, not just at work, but even like from a personal standpoint, like you go through like service level agreements or like very complex like legal documents that most people don't read. So just giving people the ability to like summarize that content or just ask questions to it, I think it's very powerful. It comes with its own limitations and probably that's one of the reasons I'm concerned about these technologies that the reason I like utility on the duration is that it can augment a large language model, which is already very powerful. But I feel like it's hard to understand even yet. Like I would have, I feel like the tooling needs to improve to make sure that we actually know how good these things are. Like, how do we assure high quality? How do we assure that we can actually trust the, the answers? So I think that's where, where it becomes a little bit trickier. Like, yeah, it's great. You can augment large language model, but what are the right approaches and methodologies to make sure that this is trustworthy, or especially for production setups? Uh, I mean, when you're using private GPT for your own documents, you may, I don't know, maybe the impact is not as big, but when you're using this in the context of a, an actual product people are paying for, I think it's where when it becomes more dangerous or problematic. Yeah. yeah and, there, you know, obviously a lot of concerns around, you know, private information and, you know, keeping our customers' data private as we use it in these ways. So I guess kind of at a high level, can you tell us a little bit about how this technology or how this methodology works to augment large language models? Sure. Anyone that has been following, I would say, the large language models or have probably also heard about vector databases. And I would say that vector databases are just a way of creating like redevelopmented generation pipelines. But the reason vector databases have also boomed is basically because they're a way of building redevelopmented generation pipelines. So the way redevelopmented generation pipeline works is basically you have a knowledge base. That knowledge base may be in different formats. You need a way to extract information from these data sources, reprocess it, clean it, chunk it. Then you need potentially an embedding model, uh, so a way of converting uh, different pieces of text into vector representations that a model can understand. You store that information, and that allows you to then map an input from a customer to existing potentially private knowledge base. So the way this works is that uh, you have an input, you have a knowledge base that is already encoded, so you don't have to encode it every single time. You just encode, encode it and translate it into a vector representation when, when the knowledge base changes. So Anytime you change your knowledge base, you should update the representations. 
and you have an input, you try to map it with different technologies to these uh, encoded representations. You pick basically chunks of information that are relevant. And now you basically just use that as context for an LLM to solve a problem that may be answering a question or maybe something else. I think this is very powerful in the sense that it's not just for question and answering, but has, that has been like the mostly used use case, but it could even be code generation. So where this becomes very interesting, in my opinion, is that you have domain-specific languages. There's a way you could actually create code from a domain-specific language using these kind of pipelines. So it's not just for question and answering. Of course, like I mean, there are limitations to this, and for certain cases, fine-tuning may be a better solution. But at a high level, this is how it works. So you have a knowledge base or multiple knowledge bases. Think about text files, PDFs, webs the HTML files from a website. But basically, anything that you can extract text from, generate embeddings that you create and use as context. That would be it at a high level. Vector database is coming to play here on how do you actually start those generated embeddings. But I think that that's just a way of solving the problem. Depending on the use case, you may or may not need a vector database. The key here is making sure you generate like a better representation where you can then compute uh, mathematical operations on top, usually cosine similarity to compare how two things are similar to each other. But vector database is basically, in my opinion, optional, and it really depends on the use case. Sometimes you can just do the work like in memory if you don't have a huge knowledge uh, knowledge base. But if you have a big knowledge base, uh, relying on a vector database would make things like more reliable and you need to recompute things over and over again, basically. Cool. And you know, you talked a little bit about the challenges that these these approaches take. And I think that's kind of interesting with all LLM stuff. Is it so new that we're all kind of real time figuring out what the risks are and how to mitigate those <laughs> risks? What are some of the approaches that Clavio is taking or, or what are some of your thoughts on on how we can mitigate the kinds of risks that you pointed out? Yeah. If someone from a team is listening to this, they're probably going to laugh. But validation, validation, and validation. I think we've been obsessed with validating these pipelines. The tricky part here, in my opinion, is that generative AI applications are very new. And that means right. that for certain things, we don't even have the right methodologies or metrics. That said, I really believe like I come from a mix of data science and engineering background, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I'm seeing like a big analogy here to test-driven development, where you actually start like defining how you're going to test things, and then you actually implement the code to make that work. So I don't know if test is the right word here, maybe just validation-driven development or metrics. Right. Some people call it metrics-driven development, but I think that for these specific use cases, starting with the quality assurance <laughs> part of it, or like even the customer experience part of it, I think it's very important. Like, how are people going to use this? Try to anticipate to customer inputs and try to make sure that you get the right answers. That may be through manual work and same way that, I don't know, with supervised learning, like labeling was important. I feel like for Q&A or ritual integration pipelines, generating like Q&A banks of data may also be important. But starting with metrics and starting with the validation, in my opinion, is key here. The reason being, for software, I would say engineering pieces, most things are deterministic and the challenges are usually how do I make things fast? How do I make things reliable? How do I scale things? Then you have data science where usually, I mean, you have similar problems, but when you think about the system, you're thinking about the metrics. And usually have clear metrics. Machine learning has been here for a while. We've been using the same metrics for <laughs> decades. So it's a well-known problem, right? The challenges have been mostly probably, probably on the ML up side. And then there's Generative AI, which is somewhere in between, right? Where you have software engineering components to it, and you have the non-deterministic nature of uh, large language mm -hmm. models, which make things complicated. So in my opinion, the challenge is that, like, how do you assure quality? And it all starts, in my opinion, with uh, metric development. We have used and we're exploring like certain frameworks. There are frameworks that are coming out right now. One is called Ragas, which is uh, 
basically like quality assurance for retubulomentin generation, which I think is very interesting. It evaluates retubulomentin generation pipelines in, in like these four quadrants. They have the faithfulness, relevancy, precision, and recall. Faithfulness and relevancy are mostly about the generation side of, of the pipeline, and precision and recall are more about the retrieval part of it. So the retrieval piece would be getting the right context, if that makes sense. The generation would be generating the right answer, if that makes sense. But my opinion all starts with metrics, uh, mm-hmm. Try to anticipate to the inputs that you're going to get from customers, which is always tricky because I mean, you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes like customers behave in, in weird ways that are hard to anticipate. But in my opinion, like start with metrics, build tests, so you can basically test test the, the pipelines end to end. Mostly because it also enables you to use different providers, different providers in terms of like which embedding models do you use for your text, or even the larger which model you use for summarization. If you have a clear like end to end validation pipeline based on these tests, it allows you to change pieces of the puzzle and optimize for different things. But it all starts with how are you going to validate this pipeline? And I think that's the the trickiest part of this type of systems. Right. Yeah. Validation-driven development. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. It's, it's a hard problem. How do you validate in a non-deterministic you know, problem space? Wow. Really cool topic. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that on the show. Is there <laughs> anything else that our listeners should know about this interesting body of work? Well, one of the most interesting things for me that we really want to try is a different way of doing retrieval iterations. We've been using the standard approach, the one that I mentioned, like take data, embed it, do comparisons, provide it, use it as context for a large language model. But there's a d- different approach that is called HIDE. It stands for Hypothetical Document Embeddings, which is you may use an intermediate LLM. Maybe it's a one that is cheaper and smaller. And you use that to generate in a, a potentially like a hypothetical answer to the question, even though you know it's not the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the motivation for this is that retirement generation is based on one huge assumption, huge, huge assumption, which is that inputs and context are similar semantically. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily true all the time. Right. And that can actually cause like hallucination because like you may not be looking for the right context. So one of the frameworks that people are different approaches that people are taking right now is why don't I use even the same LLM or another LLM, like I said, if, if you feel like you have cost constraints, you may use a cheaper LLM, but generate a question, even if that question has some hallucinations, and then you use that synthetic, let's say, answer to look for context and follow the regular approach. But instead of just mapping input to context, you map, you generate a synthetic response and then use that synthetic response to actually look for context to then answer the question. Right. That makes sense. I think that's very interesting. Uh, we really want to observe it and we'll probably experiment with it in the future, but it's an interesting change in, in the approach. Yeah. Cool. Wow. That, yeah, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. idea. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Manu. And I'm excited to see the work that you're doing be released on the Clavio product at some point soon for general release. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Nope. Uh, it was my pleasure. And yeah, thanks for having me. And we are now joined on the podcast by Charlie. Charlie, welcome back. All right. Thank you, Michael. Great to, great to be back. Awesome. I think it's been a minute since we've had you on. So would you like to remind the audience who you are, what you do here at Clavio? Sure. Yeah. My name is Charlie Natoli. I'm a senior data scientist at Clavio, and I work on our editor's team. So helping build out emails uh, inside of our platform. Yeah. have been on a number of times. Always a pleasure to have you on. I think you've been on every single one of these year in review episodes as well. I think so. Yeah. It's been, uh, been, been a good couple of years. Yeah. Well, in that case, you know the drill. I'll, I'll just jump right into the question. What is the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? So this feels like slightly wonky, or but I think one of the coolest things I learned was actually kind of like a UX research framework mm. um, around how people use generative AI. So more of a way of thinking with a fancy name than a 
statistical method, but researchers did these really in-depth interviews where they just basically watched people using ChatGPT and conducting tasks and did these kind of interviews, like I think about an hour and a half each one. And they kind of came up with this idea that they call accordion editing. So if you think of what an accordion does, like it kind of like right expands and then contracts. And similarly, they found that people kind of often have a very similar way that they use like generative AI. Um, so you first kind of ask it to brainstorm or, oh, that's interesting. Why don't you expand on this part? And then at the very end, you kind of, oh, I actually want to refine this. Like, oh, you know, maybe like cut this paragraph down. Like you've given me the 10 best restaurants in Barcelona. Now cut that down to three or something. And I think this was really cool because it was like a really humble and straightforward way of thinking about generative AI and, and some of the work that we're doing. I think it's sort of easy to assume people, you know, they're just like, you know, people just want AI to do everything for you, like click a button and generate something that looks like a, a full email or a segment or whatever. But I think actually what this shows is that people, just like if you're, you know, writing or painting or whatever without generative AI, like people are actually looking to do something that's a lot more iterative and back and forth. And so like that was sort of a nice way for me to think about like, okay, actually, yeah, duh, of course, like we'd want to build that in as well. That's a really interesting topic and definitely different from a lot of the ones that I've heard about so far talking to other people for this episode. And I guess something that I'm curious about, I think it's for someone who is working with AI, for someone who's kind of in the field working at a place like Clavio, it's probably pretty clear why this is a cool thing. It's probably pretty clear why this is like applicable to the work that you do. If you had to explain why this is interesting to maybe someone who isn't as familiar with AI or isn't as familiar with building things with AI, what might you explain to them? Like, why is this the coolest thing versus some of the things they've seen in the news, maybe in the headlines? Right. For me, at least the headlines always have like a very exciting demo and like, wow, it's so cool that the AI mm -hmm. can be X. But oftentimes it's kind of hard to know what's cherry picked, right? Like it yeah. did a really good job this time, but if you try it again, like with a very similar prompt, it will kind of be messed up. Um, so for me, I just, <laughs> I thought it was really cool and refreshing to kind of see a very like humble take on how people actually want to use AI in the real world and what they do and don't. But in a way, I, I totally get that it's not, it's not cool in like a, yeah, cool new AI demo kind of sense. But, well, but as well, you point cool. out, like so those demos are to a certain extent artificial. So it is cooler for the fact that it is real, I think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to just say, here's how powerful a tool could be, you know, an optimal closed door experimental situation. And it's another to try to get an insight into how to actually design a tool for real people actually using it. And, you know, that's something that we should all strive to do as, as software engineers and not just marvel at whatever glory, the coolest possible thing <laughs> in a hypothetical could be. Yes, totally. So I'm curious, you know, you do a lot of work on this kind of stuff at Clavio, have you kind of taken this insight and used it in any Clavio products yet? Do you have any specific plans or, or sneak peeks for how this is going to work its way into Clavio products? Yeah, I can't give too many specifics, um, but we're definitely thinking about um, how to sort of make some of our some of our content tools more iterative, more easy for people not just to generate stuff, but then to refine it. I guess one thing that I am curious about, obviously, like the general kind of workflow that you're describing, like the accordion workflow. I think it makes sense in theory, but I'm wondering, did that lead to any like concrete, like, and therefore insert type of UI decision is generally better or worse or potentially better or worse suited for certain types of tasks, type insights? Yeah, I think so. Certainly for a creative or brainstorming type task, I think having the ability to kind of 
you know, generate some, let's say like email content, right. And then zero mm-hmm. in on part of it and say, okay, like change this or, mm-hmm. you know, expand a little bit more on this kind of thing. So I think yeah. UI perspective, that's yeah, the ability to go back and click on this and say, expand this or change this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Well, thank you, Charlie, for sharing the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023. Now, obviously, Zach, I think it wouldn't be a, a good showing of us not to give our answers. So I'm going to turn around and ask you the same question that you've been asking a bunch of people on this episode, which is, what is the coolest data science thing that you learned about this year? Yeah, well, you know, last year I came in all jazzed about Haskell, which is a cool programming language, but I think I can top it. I think I may have <laughs> the end game programming language. All right, this t- year, tell us, what is what is the future of programming languages? I think this probably is not going to be a surprise to anyone who already had learned about this previous to 2023, but... I've had a great deal of fun this year learning the language Rust. Rust is a really cool language. It's extremely safe. It's a compiled language where the compiler will just catch any possible problem that you're ever going to have. If it compiles, it's totally safe, which is just not true with, you know, like C languages where you can get some really weird memory issues. If anyone is listening has had one of those, you know that that's truly terrible and, I've, and I've confusing <laughs> never heard of it what who or what is a segmentation fault i'm sure c wouldn't allow things like that <laughs> yeah no absolutely not no problems at all in c so rust is extremely safe it's extremely fast i you know i kind of knew this anecdotally but i was messing around on leet code just kind of doing some stuff with rust to you know get familiar with the language and on one problem my Python answer was about 50 times slower than my Rust answer, my best Python and best Rust answer. And then (laughs) for another problem, my best Python answer was about 20 milliseconds. And it informed me that my Rust solution took zero milliseconds and was faster than 100% of submissions. So my takeaway is that Rust is anywhere between 50 and infinity times faster <laughs> than Python. And it's not even that painful to write, which I think like if you've done a lot of like C, it could kind of not be that fun. I feel like a lot of, you know, Java type languages can just be a little jargony. And, you know, I'm going to make a lot of people angry by uh, talking trash about Java, but um, <laughs> it, it's a pleasure to write. It has some interesting features. It borrows a lot from other cool languages. It definitely borrows a lot from Haskell. And it's a very mature and and well-designed language. And it's unlike Haskell, which is just kind of like an academic brain teaser of a language. I never really got a lot of practical use out of it. Rust is extremely practical. It's really built for use in, in solving actual problems. And there are a lot of really cool applications of Rust coming out, like Rust React and, you know, a lot of Rust data science being done, and um, it's fast, it's safe, it's cool. Check it out. Rust is the coolest data science thing that I have learned about in 2023. So, I mean, I'll have to ask the same follow-up question, which is, how would you explain the coolness of this? Uh, we're going into the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. We're all about to go home, and our our families are going to ask us many questions about uh, what we're doing at work. How would you explain at the dinner table, you know? why rust is the coolest thing you learned about this year <laughs> that is a hard one uh because it gets into some kind of esoteric computer science stuff but <laughs> i think maybe at a high level way of explaining it is python 
just kind of does a lot of things for you. And you don't really need to be explicit about what you're doing. Like you can say that, you know, there's a variable X. Python will check what that is. It'll figure out, is this a number? Is it a string? You can change what X is at any time. And Python just kind of needs to like keep up with that. And as a result, it needs to allocate a lot of space. It needs to take a lot of time checking, you know, what things are and if they're going to be compatible with each other. Whereas, you know, in Rust, you not only have to say explicitly what something is, but you can say like, I'm going to use an eight byte integer or uh, which takes up exactly this much space, you know, an eight byte unsigned integer. So like a positive <laughs> integer, which takes up exactly this much space on my computer. And, you know, obviously in that situation, the amount of space that a variable needs to take up is just vastly less. The amount of work that the computer needs to do, I mean, it does it all up front because it can prove mathematically if everything is, checks out, if all the types of everything are going to work together. And as a result, it can just run so much faster in between 50 and, and infinity times faster. And I, I, don't, I don't know if we can officially endorse the infinity number as a <laughs> no, podcast, I'm, I'm to be clear. We should, we should endorse it. It, it seems. We should, seems <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. People are already going to be so mad at us for this answer. <laughs> it's true. Well, Rust was voted most loved language by Stack Overflow's survey oh. for seven years okay. in a row. So Maybe people, people like won't Rust. be that mad at us then. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of a, a brain melter. I mean, the example that I gave is is maybe more relatable, but there's a lot of stuff around. I mean, it kind of has a unique system of data ownership, which I personally have not come across in any other language and I think is fairly unique to Rust. But by doing things like that, it can be extremely safe while still being really fast. So I'm kind of getting away from the dinner table answer. But yeah, I'll stick with it just does a lot of the, the you have to be explicit about things, which make it run a lot faster. And it's kind of echoes a, a conversation that I had on, on this episode with Matt about how Python kind of doesn't enforce best practices in programming. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to know what types your variables are anyways. And you need to know like, at what point, what is changing the value, what owns the value, what it's pointing to, uh, if you're going to write a complex system successfully. So Rust doesn't ultimately even really add that much work. It just makes you do it up front. And makes it so that everything can run a lot faster. Yeah, I think that's a great answer to this question. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Michael, we're going to have to ask you the same question. And, um, you know, I'm just going to hope that it's not yet another video game answer. But, uh, Michael, what was the coolest thing, the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2023? You fool. You've fallen <laughs> right into my trap. <laughs> of course, it's a video game thing. It's always a video game thing. Okay. So this year, the coolest data science thing that I learned about comes from a YouTube video that I watched, actually. And honestly, the coolest thing about it is that it is just a clear reminder of how powerful some basic data science solutions can be. In this case, it was taking a very, very, very basic reinforcement learning model and using it to play Pokemon Red. Uh, obviously, like, you know, reinforcement learning to play a video game is not exactly a new topic. There are quite a few examples of this in the past and, you know, kind of using reinforcement learning to play video games and, you know, beat high scores that humans can't possibly match and all of that stuff. But a lot of times those are slightly simpler games where, you know, maybe you literally have a score counter and you can note like, oh, OK, yep, you see the score go up. Obviously, that's good for the reinforcement. Like you can use that as the reward in some way or it ties into the reward in some way. It's a little less obvious what to do 
in Pokemon where, you know, there are a lot of different things you can do in that game. You can walk around in that game. You can get into battles in that game. You can get into battles both with trainers and with random Pokemon in the overworld. And when you're in those, you know, you can try to win the battle. You can try to lose the battle. You can use items in the battle, including items that help you catch a ran- like a wild Pokemon. There's a lot of stuff that you can do. And that's before we even get into the obvious complexity of you might have multiple Pokemon in your party and they might have multiple moves and it might not be obvious what the right solution is in terms of just what Pokemon should I use and what move should I click. So I was thinking going into this, oh, there's going to be some super complicated reinforcement. Like the reward function for this is going to be crazy complicated. It's going to be broken into a ton of different steps. They're probably going to have to explicitly build in rewards for like, oh, you've gotten to insert place on the map. Then you get some amount of reward. It's remarkably simple, actually. What they do is essentially they store all of the places that you've like they kind of store what you've seen in terms of the map and you get a small amount of reward for getting to a place on the map that isn't stored in memory. So you get some amount of reward for exploring the map. You get a small amount of reward based on the like the total level of your Pokemon in of all the Pokemon in your party. So that indirectly incentivizes you to catch new Pokemon and level them up by fighting random battles, both against trainers and against random Pokemon. And that's pretty much it. A lot of things that you might think of as like, oh, surely they must have something in there for like, we want to make sure that you don't lose too many battles against trainers. So we're going to add in a negative reward if you get into a battle and you lose it. Well, what they found was they would just refuse to click confirm on the you've lost the battle screen. (laughs) Well, that's that's a little I'm not sure if that's the best move. (laughs) And actually, probably the most interesting single part of this was, so we talked about the level of your Pokemon in your party, right? Like that being involved in the reward here. What they found was over time, the agent stopped going to the Pokemon Center, which meant that basically they were never healing, which made it harder for them to actually win battles. And the reason for that was occasionally, just purely randomly, they would walk over to the PC And they would drop a Pokemon from their party. And because of that, obviously, the level in your party goes down. And that's like, you know, it goes down by a large amount all at once. It's basically like in a reinforcement learning sense, it's like a traumatic event. It's like falling off the cliff in an edge walking problem. (laughs) So obviously, that had to make some adjustments to the way that they calculated the reward based on what's in your party so that they didn't drive people away from the Pokemon Center by accident so that they could continue like having healthy Pokemon and beating battles. But I was shocked by the fact that they only had those two, like very simple ways of incrementing the reward function. And based off of that, like basically in, in two hours of play, like the agents were able to beat the first gym and get into Mount moon, which I certainly didn't do that when I played the game as a kid in two hours. <laughs> two hours? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Like, oh, man, I got to watch. I mean, how big was their party? Like, what what, did they have the battle like on video? Like, what? Yeah. What's uh, what kind of Pokemon did they have? Imagine just like a really a Rattata that's like really, really, really strong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm actually not sure about all of the, the specifics here. And one of the cool things about this is 
they provide the code for this. Like it's it's all up in GitHub. It's all public. You could run this yourself if you wanted to. And then you could, you know, any question you have about like, what is the like reinforcement learning approved optimal starter? We can finally scientifically determine is Bulbasaur the best one? <laughs> <laughs> all of that stuff you can you can do yourself by running the code here and and seeing kind of what happens when you run things through. So that's one of the cool things here. Wow. I thought way too hard about that game when I played it. I really over <laughs> over considered my strategy, I guess. Um I had no idea. <laughs> no idea. It could be so simple. Did they like how far in the game did they get? Like since it was only like the the two hours was like an I think probably a slightly a well i don't want the training runs to take forever type decision they only really got into mount moon and that's actually they got to the point where basically they're gonna start running into trouble with the way that the reward function is set up because mount moon looks really really similar uh mm. <laughs> so they're gonna start running into trouble with the part of their function that know. says like have you explored a new part of the map so they were probably at the point where they would need to make a new change anyway but the fact that they were able to get that far in that amount of time is still like pretty remarkable, I think. Right. So it was, it was using like visual similarity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. OK, got it. It also shows like I've been hyping up how cool it is and how powerful this basic technique is. But obviously, it also shows some of the traps that you run into using right. these basic approaches. Like there are some parts on the map that have a lot of visual similarity and only one way to get out of them. And as mm -hmm. you would expect with an algorithm like this, they basically, once you get in there, you're kind of trapped. Right. So it's certainly not foolproof. You're not going to definitely beat the game this way. There are places that you can fall into where it's like, well, this this training run is over. <laughs> right. But that's but, still uh, really far. Yeah. I mean, it's much to beat the first gym much more efficient than, mm -hmm. you know, most human players. At least their first time, right? Like, yeah. obviously, if, if we went in back, if we went back and played Pokemon today, I imagine we would probably beat the first gym in less than two hours. But again, I definitely didn't when I was the right. age where I was playing these as a right. kid. Right. <laughs> wow. You know, I feel like, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about kind of the value of simplicity in data science. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, you can really get into trouble if you overthink things. And it's easy to just assume, oh, I need to throw the most complex optimization function. I need to throw the most complex model at this. But yeah, sometimes, you know, just <laughs> two rules. And that gets you through yeah. a good chunk of the game. Um, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a reminder that you don't always have to throw out like the fanciest technique. I mean, we, we just had an episode about this last right. month, so I won't go too right. on. I, I won't go on on it too long, but it's a good reminder that we aren't always trying out simple methods as like a point of comparison. Sometimes they are actually very good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the interpretability of the model is then really cool. Like it's kind of much more impressive to a human to have a really simple model do something really cool than like, you know, obviously some really complicated model, you throw enough compute at it, it'll be able to solve kind of anything. But it's mm -hmm. it's pretty cool to see that. Agreed. Well, I hope that <laughs> you don't feel too badly that you fell directly into my trap for you another know, year straight. But <laughs> that, that was a good one. Uh, I don't know. How could we have seen this coming? I don't know. <laughs> I could I didn't see it coming at all, but it, you know, it was it was a good one. That was a pretty cool yeah. one. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, Charlie, thank you for coming on for another year. And I think this is a good way to close out 2023. Thanks to everyone who was on the episode. It was a pleasure having all of you. And 
yeah, until next time, same time next year. <laughs> See you next year. And we have reached the end of this year in review episode on the Clavio Data Science Podcast. This episode of the Clavio Data Science Podcast, as they all are, was sponsored by Clavio. If you want to know more about Clavio, Clavio's intelligent marketing automation platform makes it easy for marketers to centralize and use every piece of their customer data to deliver hyper personalized experiences across all of their channels, increasing conversions and revenue. You can always go to Clavio.com, that's K L A V I Y O.com, to learn more. If you liked what you heard on this episode of the Clavio Data Science Podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. Most importantly of all, if you liked what you heard on this and you think you know someone else who would be interested in hearing content like this, go ahead and send it directly to them. If you know someone who's interested in any of the topics that we brought up, I think this is a great way to not only help them learn a little bit more about the topic, maybe hear a little bit about it in practice, but also to give them a chance to learn about more things in the future that might be relevant to them as well. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns related to this episode, the best person to reach is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That's Lawson underscore M underscore T, L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for listening. Have a great month.